Coming up this week, off screen. We meet the new Magnificent Seven. Spend some time with Brian De Palma. Get introduced to the girl with all the gifts. Dare to be wild. Get a little frank. Pop to Barden Barden. Embrace the Imperium. Look at some little men. And settle in with the lovers and the despot. All those to come and more, off screen. This is... This is off screen. Off screen. latest film news and reviews. This is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. Welcome to Offscreen, I'm Van Connor. I'm Case Allen. So we, we need to start with some, before we get to you know the fun of reviewing all the films and the interviews and the film news mm. and the stuff that we enjoy so much this yeah, week. Yeah, we always have fun. We, we've got to talk about the really, really sad part mm. first, which is Curtis Hansen, who's a director who's produced some pretty great films that I think both you and I love. Yeah, absolutely. And he's passed yeah. away, he's passed away 71 as well, I didn't even know he was that old. No, um, he'd kind of shied away a little bit the last couple of years. He was doing, what was that surf film with Jared Butler? Oh, Chasing Mavericks. Chasing Mavericks. He yeah. was the director on that, and then he had to oh. be replaced because of ill health. He basically is officially a co-director, isn't it? It's him and Michael Apted. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, he was He was sadly in the state that, that he was. Well, he um, retired, I think it was 2011, which was around about the time, about halfway through the development of About uh, halfway Chasing through the, the production, yeah. But he's left behind a fantastic body of work. Um, Eight Mile, uh, uh, The River Wild. Well, oh, Wonder oh, Boys, Ellie Confidential, Ham that Rocks the Cradle was yeah, the one that I didn't, didn't know, know that was his. Yeah. I didn't, and I love the Ham that Rocks it's the Cradle. It's a great film. That's yeah. my go-to '90s adult thriller. It is a great schlocky adult thriller. Isn't it, it is, it? isn't yeah. it? And it has John Delancey as a criminal doctor, which is just worth <laughs> just the whole more movie. films need that. More films need John Delancey's criminal doctor. But yeah, Curtis Hansen. Yeah, very very sad. Let's talk about uh, the lovers and the despot real quick. Then get through this. We've got loads of films this week, and we've got to get them all as quickly mm. as possible. So let's talk about the lovers and the despot, which is a fascinating true story you won't have heard. I guarantee you won't have heard this story. I don't know. I've, I've heard a lot of true stories. Okay, so this is about a South Korean director. Shing Sang-ok and his uh, his wife slash leading lady, uh, Choi, and they were abducted by Kim Jong-il and held for five... They, sorry, they had divorced. They were then abducted by Kim Jong-il in the late 70s, remarried at his insistence, and they ran the North Korean film industry for five years. I've not heard that, but have that you, sounds great. It does, doesn't it? Right. We have not got a clip because most of it's in uh, South Korean and Japanese. And, uh, well, the really strange thing about it is the story is absolutely bonkers. And just this... You, you could see this taking place as like a fictional narrative. It'd be a great, great one to see. Sort of a, a David O. Russell type film you could see this happening um oh no because that would be they would recast it with bradley cooper and jennifer lawrence do you know what you're, you're absolutely yeah. right <laughs> there'll be some terrible race bending there yeah. but what you have is a story of uh two guys and their obsessions you have uh shin's obsession with film he was obsessed with making films that was his whole thing and then you had and, and also control and he was a very domineering guy and then you had uh, kim jong-il who's was equally obsessed, but he was obsessed with Shin. So, kind of an interesting counter-argument. This comes by the way of uh, first-time uh, filmmakers, um, Ross Adam and uh, Robert Cannon. And they've they've written and directed this. I think it's a labour of love that's gone on for about five years for them. I think the whole thing originated... Because I actually I, I interviewed them briefly yesterday. And the whole, the whole origin story seems to come from the fact that they loved the story, went looking to see if there was a documentary about it because they wanted to know more, found out there wasn't, and said... Let's just be Let's the guys it. that make yeah. that documentary, and uh, it's to say it's a ninety-eight minutes, a pretty breezy 
a breezy sort of an affair. Um, it's not quite the story you want it to be. It tries to have its cake and eat. It tries to be a film about North Korea by way of these two these two individual people and their their interactions with Kim Jong Il. What you have got is like some interesting archival material. You've got actual recordings of Kim Jong Il, which I didn't know were a thing. They've managed to evidently they themselves smuggled um, not the filmmakers the, uh, the people involved in the actual story smuggled out recordings of conversations between themselves and Kim Jong Il and he's the weirdest thing to hear this dictator just candidly having a conversation about movies. Hmm. I mean, just just chatting. Yeah. I mean, could, could you imagine? Imagine just like yeah. hearing Gaddafi talk about the Matrix. It'd be the weirdest thing you've ever heard. talk to Putin about Fast and Furious films. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> you know that, yeah. that Vlad loves him yeah, or something. Yeah. Putin's, yeah. Putin's a Fast Five fan. Let's be honest. Like fan. you know, it all got better when when the Rock came. Yeah, in. when the Rock yeah. came in, I was more interested. I've heard <laughs> that the Rock is actually going to be Vlad in in a film biopic. He's going to be Vladimir Putin. I can't tell if you're kidding now. I, I am kidding. But oh, you know that. You the know thing you is, I would that. believe that. I would that. absolutely <laughs> believe that. But no, The Lovers and Desperate is, is an interesting enough story. It's not quite totally what you want it to be. There are issues of truthfulness presented within the film. And famously, in reality, there is some debate as to whether or not their story was real. Mm. And because we only really have their word, because of the nature of the DPRK, we only really have their word to go on as as regards what happened. And there is some question as to the truthfulness of it. The film doesn't quite delve into the possibilities as regards that. It kind of leaves it up to your own... T- you can either go with it or you can see through it. And the problem is we came out of the screen and went, you know what, there's got to be an awful lot of BS in that. There's got to be an awful lot of, of fibbing going on. And the film doesn't quite make much of an argument either way. And that's a bit of a problem. It doesn't even really highlight that there is a truthful issue. And uh, that kind of left me wanting. I, I was interested by it, though, because mm. it is an interesting story. It is an interesting premise, absolutely. I mean, had you heard that before? Had you heard that story? I'd not. That You'd was not. one of the four stories I've never heard. <laughs> four stories you've never heard? Yeah. Well, the six Star Wars movies. So, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to know which ones you haven't. Um, so... <laughs> Take a guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, you're going to love this one. Oh, you, you never heard episode one? Please allow me. Sit down let me tell you all about Jar Jar Binks. Um, that could be a podcast special. Yeah, I think so. Jared Leto news this one. Oh yeah, because it's it's a new week. It's a new week, so we've got to have some Jared Leto news, and he's doing so well on the back of Suicide Squad that uh, we all we all need to remind ourselves that he's got he won a Blade an Oscar. Runner. Now he's got a biopic. He's got a biopic, yes, and he's going to be none other than Andy Warhol. And my only issue with this is, first of all, how do you not get Bill Hader to play Andy Warhol? Best part of Men in Black Three. It is, isn't it? Bill Hader yeah. as as Andy Warhol. It's fantastic. Jared Leto is going to play him. This is going to be. Um, I'm actually being directed by. Terence Winter. Has it been directed by or just I know he's by? doing the screenplay. Doing the screenplay. But so, they, they're kind of doing it together and he's producing it. I wouldn't be surprised if he directs it. I, I wouldn't either. I but think this is shopping for the director. being produced as a prestige project, which is a nice way of saying Oscar fodder. Yeah. That's Oscar the, bait. The polite way of saying Oscar yeah. fodder. Isn't he said it's just like a little indie. Yeah. Indie but yeah, so Jared Leto as Andy Warhol. Fine, that can work. We've seen him with blonde hair. Yeah. But then he also got punched in the face, and it was great. <laughs> I don't quite want to see his Andy Warhol get beaten, but... Uh, hey, I mean, he had quite the life. He, he was bullied he, well, in, in Pittsburgh. That so, kind, of, uh, kind of goes hand in hand. We'll see. But uh, by the way, your boy Adam Scott turns up in the newsletter, just FYI. Just, oh, that's good. I, I know you. I, I want to give you something to look forward to, because <laughs> uh, first I have to talk about Little Men. And uh, this one, I, I'm, I, this one's going to kind of destroy you a little bit, Case, because it's the kind of film I feel like you might like, but I didn't so much, and I feel okay. bad about Why'd it. Why do you have a 
Why do you have an, an idea about what I would like? <laughs> because it feels like an imitation Brad Noah, Noah Baumbach movie. Uh. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay, so this is about um, a pair of uh, be- like sort of I think tween best friends would be the word. They're like twelve-year-old boys, they're best friends. They come from different walks of life. They've recently moved back into the same area together. Um, there, one of them has a set of parents played by uh, Jennifer Ale and Greg Kinnear, and they own a shop at the, at the, in the base of their building. The other one has a mother who works in and rents that shop. Works in and rents that shop. And uh, the idea is Greg Kinnear has inherited the shop from his father, who had a relationship, uh, a friendship with the other boy's mother. Basically, one family want to raise the rent, the other one can't pay it. And in the meanwhile, you have this friendship caught in the middle of it, and it's sort of a coming-of-age tale in the middle of a family squabble, really. Here's a clip. Leonor, do you want some wine? Wait, I'm going to be going. Uh, you know, Brian and I wanted to have a talk with you about some things anyway, so maybe now's a good time. Oh, thank you, but I have to go back and finish some stuff at the office. Well, we just wanted a minute of your time, if that's okay. Right, Brian? Um, I have to go back, but thanks. You know, Leonore, ever since my father died, just so much has happened. You and I haven't really had a chance to talk about the store and all that stuff. And maybe we could just have a chat this week. Oh, I'm sorry, but this week is not good for me. I'm doing inventory, so... Next week? So this comes, by the way, of writer-director Ira Sachs. And mm. so you've got a hell of a cast there. I mean, no one's ever saying seeing Greg Kinnear is a bad thing. Jennifer Hill, I like very much. Alfred Molina turns up in this. and in that, the mid- that makes sense, because he was in uh, Ira Sachs' last film. Uh, Love is Strange. That was the one. Yeah. Yes, I couldn't get my, I couldn't get into it. I was quite looking forward to it. I couldn't really get that one. I it. quite liked mm. this one. I liked an awful lot less. Now, the two, bo- the two boys at the center of it all are great. I think they are Michael Barbieri and Theo Tappert. They are great, and they are wor- they carry the film wholeheartedly. Uh, the problem is it rapidly descends from almost minute one into. Really, just sub Noah Baumbach mumblecore nonsense. And was, was did Noah Baumbach do Maggie's plan? What was the last one he did? No, um... we reviewed one recently. I'm sure we did. It's, it's going to bug I'm, me as well. I'm on IMDb. I'm on <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, the problem is, it is a lot of navel-gazing. It is a lot of ponderous wine-drinking in New York lofts kind of an affair. The problem is that its core audience seem to be its own characters. And really, there's not much to write home about. And you want more, given this cast. And you never get it. And it's a frustrating experience. Made tolerable only by the fact that the film is 85 minutes long. So, mercifully, it's over pretty quickly with the latest film news and reviews this is off screen the on-screen radio show and we're back and the film was while we're young that was the noah baumbach movie and yeah he, he has done uh, mistress america but i've not seen that very i've not seen that either no, but you and you and i were both had, had had a lot of conversations about while we're young yeah it was uh, great it made me uh, want to wear a hat and then i realized i don't look good in hats do you know you're not a hat person i'm not that's a hat fair man. enough not a hat man. so before we move on to all the imperium stuff let's uh, plug the podcast real quick because we've got loads to get through this week as always can't fit it all into the radio edit so of course we have to put an extended podcast edition out which uh, 
this week means we just have a longer interview and we have more stuff after the credits. We have more reviews after the end credits and, of course, the moment of Cage, which is awesome. It was always fun. And uh, Oh, and this week we can't fit the box office top ten into the show. It's only in the podcast edition. So if you want to know what's number one at the box office, you can probably guess. Just check your Facebook feed. You can probably guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, just The Infiltrator. The, the, it's the infiltrator, totally. Yeah, yeah totally. Just right. save him some time. <laughs> it's totally, clearly the infiltrator. Yeah. <laughs> not, but uh, okay, so let's talk about Imperium then, which it comes to us uh, from first time Helmer, uh, D- uh, Daniel Ragusis. And this is a very strange uh, scale for a first time filmmaker. What you've got is a, basically an infiltration story, an undercover top, uh, cop story in the sort of traditional sense. You have an FBI agent played by Daniel Radcliffe, who's a bookish sort of academic y nerd type FBI. FBI agent, you know the kind that we sort of bred after the war on terror, the the, the academic we actually speak Arabic breed of agents. Mm. Um, because of his uh, more vocal nature, because of his less physical, his less actiony nature, he is approached by the head of the undercover unit, played by Tony Collette, and asked to go undercover to investigate Dick. What? Not Dick Wolf. Dick Wolf is the uh, guy who writes uh, Law and Order, isn't he? Yes. Not um, Dick Wolf. Dallas. Dallas Wolf. Dallas Wolf. Dallas yeah. Wolf. Sorry, Dick Wolf is Dick Wolf's Law and Order. <laughs> what a Dallas crossover! Wolf. That would have been great. Uh, he's he's asked to infiltrate uh, Dallas Wolf, who is this sort of shock DJ, a sort of uh, who is the Fox News guy, Glenn Beck, a sort of Glenn yeah. Beck, a wannabe Glenn Beck type, um, who is inciting hatred and a, a, a potential race war across America. Uh, we have a clip, and then we'll cut to we'll have an interview with uh, with Daniel Ragusas. I'm trying to tell you that this is not my thing. Okay, I, mean, I, I barely passed the PFT. What do you think undercover work is? Beating guys up and shooting at them? No, it's, it's people skills. It's controlling situations. I saw you with that Muslim kid. You got most of this going on anyway. Look, I read your file. High IQ, great people skills, but not your typical FBI profile. Introverted, an outsider, unhappy childhood. Single mother, always moving around a lot, always a new kid, bullied at school, no close friends or... Okay, okay, okay. okay. Um, thanks for, for speaking to us. So Imperium, it's based on the, the real-life um, exploits of Mike German, a uh, former FBI agent. And this was a story that was, was interesting to you personally. How did you come across that story? Because I wasn't aware of it at all. I had no idea about yeah. any of this. Yeah, so I had actually... Um, I had done a f- short film about a World War One chemist, uh, and that had led me to interest uh, in both World War One and World War Two. And when I was researching World War Two, I sort of became aware of the neo-Nazi and white supremacist community in the United States, which was much larger and broader and more diverse, a lot of the things that you see in the movie, uh, than I had realized. And so when I was looking into that community, I stumbled across Mike German's story. And I thought that was sort of the perfect vehicle and the perfect entry point into the story for a viewer to see it through the eyes of an undercover uh, agent. Uh, And so at that point, I contacted Mike. I sort of flew out to meet him. I sat down and I said, I'd really love to do, you know, something based on your story. We decided early on that we'd have to modernize and fictionalize the story. We couldn't use his real cases, you know, things like that. Um, But we would try to create something that was 
very true to the spirit of what he had experienced. You've got Daniel Radcliffe uh, leading the way. Was, was that a bit of casting that Mike himself personally had to sign off on, you think? Yeah, well, he thought it was a great idea. I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things that that came from um, was Mike himself in the sense that Mike is certainly not what I would imagine a, a typical FBI agent to be. And, and I, I said to him pretty early on, Mike, I have to say, you're not really what, I, don't take this the wrong way, but you're not really what I would imagine an FBI agent to be. Are and you picturing Robert Davi? Is that yeah, what yeah, exa- yeah, exactly, right? No, perfect, exactly. <laughs> Um, and he, and that's when he explained to me, you know, being an undercover agent, it's not about physical dominance, it's about social dominance. It's about people liking you and wanting to open up to you and trusting you and all that sort of thing. And, and once the conversation went in that direction, uh, then somebody like Dan became perfect for the role. And I thought of him very early on and I talked to Mike about it and Mike thought it was, it was, it was brilliant. So there, there is the aspect, as you say, about the, it's about social dominance. It is about social infiltration. Uh, how did you go about writing that aspect specifically? Well, how did you research that? What were your, your, your go-tos for that? Yeah. I mean, there was a ton of research. And so, of course, from the get-go, I had Mike which was great. And so, you know, once a week, we'd sit down for four or five hours, we'd do an interview, I'd, I'd sort of pick his brain about all these things. Um, but then there was a second track that I was pursuing, which he helped guide me along, where I was doing a ton of research uh, on the movement in general. And so that involved books by sociologists who had spent years living amongst these people and allowing them to present themselves in their own worlds. Um, memoirs from people who had left the movement, biographies of famous figures in the movement, uh, and then, of course, the Internet, which today, as you can imagine, is an enormous repository True. of information. There are forums uh, online that have millions of visitors uh, where you can hear white supremacists not only discuss their political views, but also talk about what their favorite painting is and exchange recipes and talk about their workout regimens and <laughs> how they're looking for love and all sorts of other things. So. It's all to say that there's a way of putting together a very clear and vivid picture of what these folks' everyday life is, and that's what I was hopefully trying to incorporate into the movie. That was something I found really interesting in the film. There is a, a brilliant moment in which uh, they have a sort of when they have the cookout, and there are literally swastika cupcakes. And it's kind of played for a sort of a gag moment, but it's it's one of those, it plays the domestic angle. And was that something that intrigued you at all? Yeah, and first of all, I mean, because I get asked this a lot, you know, I think a lot of people, I've, I've heard the comment, well, you know, the film goes a little bit too far with the Swastika Cupcakes. I mean, that was something real, as almost ever, everything was, you know. Um, I, I wouldn't have the creativity to make, to make these <laughs> things up, frankly, you know. Um, so, so, yes, I, I, I think to be able... The most fascinating things that I saw um, when I was watching documentaries and reading these books were these portraits of everyday life, was to really think about what would it be like to hold these beliefs and these views and to live amongst our society and to raise a family and to try to somehow preserve these, you know, somewhat horrific ideals in, in the face of the larger community. So all of that was really interesting to me and it was something that I saw and encountered a lot in the research. Um, so I wanted to try to portray that. I'm a big fan of Dan the movie, um, but I'm, I'm a bigger fan of uh, Tracy Letts. Mm. And he, I, I thought, su- superb choice, by the way, for that Thank role. You. And he is one of those, that guy from that thing 
sort of an actor, where no yeah. one knows him by name. I only just discovered a few minutes ago that he wrote Killer Joe. Yeah, and, I and August Osage County. And, and yeah. I had no idea about yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's, he's one of those character actors like Bruce Davison, and uh, yeah. you, you see, and he is reliable and he's dependable. How Was that a single choice? Was there anyone else for that, or did you immediately think, Tracy? There were other people, actually, that we had thought about, but... The moment that his name came up when I was do, thinking about it and going through people, it was like, oh, my God, he would be amazing. <laughs> it was one of those things where – and it's funny because as a director, in a casting process is, is difficult because you don't want to get so wedded to one idea that then if the person says no, you get crushed, right? Yeah. <laughs> you want to remain open. Yet at the same time, sometimes you come across a name – where you immediately get emotionally invested in it. And that was the case with Tracy. And I was like, we have to get him, we have to get him, we have to get him. And, and thank God we did. So Just keep the fried chicken away yeah, from yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I am mind blown by the killer Joe thing. Honestly, no idea. I yeah. somehow, somehow did not know. No, it's crazy. And, and, you know, it's funny. I talked to him a little bit about, you know, versus writing versus acting. He said something very interesting, which I thought was really cool. So they said, how do you balance the two careers? And he said it was useful for him because he could, you know, work on acting for a while and sort of let that, let the writing side of him, you know, brew and get fertile again and then, and then leave acting behind and go back to writing and work on that part of things so that he could go back and forth between the two disciplines and use one to sort of inform the other. I personally latched onto it as a film about mentors, about Mm. finding yourself Mm -hmm. within a belief in a mentor. Mm. And the film is... Well, it feels popular by more than its share of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, in particular, you have Tracy's character, mm-hmm. who is, I think, more of a, a sort of a, almost mascot-like mentor yeah. to it all. But you also have, for instance, uh, Tony, you have Tony's character, you have Nestor's mm-hmm. character. Who, right. Was was that something that was was particularly strong for you and in, in writing it, that pursuing the mentor angle? Well, that's a very interesting, you know, thing. I, I I never quite conceptualized it the way you're talking about it, but it's but it's true in the sense that. All, all of this is really looking at how do ideas and how do ideologies spread amongst people. Why all the thing itself that we're talking about, this sort of white supremacist ideology, how does that get fostered in, in a community? It's spread by people and it's usually handed down from people that, as you say, are mentors or experts or great speakers. I mean, if you look at someone like Hitler, that's really the only thing that he had was the ability to use words to motivate people, you know, and, and you see the unbelievable staggering damage that that a skill like that can do when it's employed you know for 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 ill purposes so so i think that exists on the on the side of the of the white supremacist and it's also as you said exists on the side of, of sort of the fbi mentors in the sense that i very much saw it as between tony and nestor their characters it was a battle of two different ideologies within the fbi and Nate was sort of at a crossroads and had to choose one or the other. And in a way, they were both battling for his soul, so to speak. Without getting into uh, into political territory, yes. do you feel that, that this year is particularly a very poignant time to have told the story? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I think what you're seeing in political movements, uh, both in the United States and all across Europe, unfortunately, is is a massive sense of disenfranchisement and exclusion by a huge portion of the population. And while we can certainly argue as to whether those feelings are legitimate and whether, you know, the solutions they propose are legitimate and all the rest of it, the feeling is real. And it's something that now everybody has to concede is having a massive impact upon our political system. Um, And so I think recognizing that feeling, recognizing why it's there, recognizing the community in which it exists, I think all of that is, is vital 
uh, for those of us who hold certain values, <laughs> you know, very dear about civil rights and equality and, <laughs> and, and, and all the rest of those things. So I think it's just, it's, it, it is, I think it is very relevant and important now. And I think it's important for us to all be looking at it with our eyes open and see it for what it really is. So onto the film then. Now we've both seen this one, haven't we? Yes, I saw it uh, last night. You saw it last night. Now I saw this last week and I was actually more impressed with it than I expected to be. I really thought it was going to be a lot more by the numbers than it is, but it has got more going for it in terms of it's something more akin to Arlington Road, I thought than anything else. Now, Arlington Road was that was that one that came out of nowhere in the late 90s, and almost nobody saw it, even though it starred Jeff Bridges and, and Tim Robbins. Mm. But it feels to me at times like this is a cross between Arlington Road and, of all things, Green Street. That, that way that you had that sort of very American infiltration of essentially a lot more violent a way of life than you'd expect. Yeah, definitely. One thing I did like about the film, and I don't know if you agreed with me on this, was I liked that there was a more human side to basically a culture of hate crimes thrown under. There's that great moment with uh, uh, swastika cupcakes, for instance. Oh, uh, the uh, swastikakes. Swastikakes, is that what you're calling them? But there are moments in which they're having the cookouts and they have those things, and you think, actually, this is a side that we never really... Other than Louis Theroux documentaries, you never really get to see this. We've got one of those in a couple of weeks, by the way. Yes, we have. Um, Can't wait. (laughs) Scientology this time. (laughs) But uh, there's a side of that that I quite liked actually being shown. Um, As far as the actual plot is because it is really a story of mentors and belief structures. I mean, the Daniel Radcliffe character's sort of misplaced belief in one one wrongful mentor after another, and they seem to become increasingly off-kilter as he goes along. Um, there are some, some great performances in there. I really like Sam Trammell as possibly the single most academic white supremacist you've ever seen. So, Oh, uh, Sam from uh, from True Blood. Sam from True Blood. Yeah, that's all I know. But thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did really like Tracy Letts as Dallas Wolf because I thought that was a great yeah. piece, that was a great piece of casting. Did you know he wrote Killer Joe? No, I didn't know that. There you go. It comes up in the extended version of the interview. There you go. <laughs> he awesome. wrote Killer Joe, the oh. book and the movie. So your eyes, your eyes oh looked lit God. up then. I thought it was all a William Fickman thing. William Fickner. Uh, no, Friedkin. 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 But uh, no, no, s- save that chat for De Palma. But <laughs> we've got some classic Hollywood to come later. Oh, yeah, can't wait. Um, I, I wasn't a fan. I know. Yeah, I was saying yeah. you, you thought less of, of Imperium than I did. I did, yeah. I wanted something a little bit more twisty. I wanted to feel a little bit more about some of the other characters other than just uh, Daniel Radcliffe characters. Mm-hmm. I thought he was very, very good. As I've said to you, I think I would have preferred to see this film. 25 years earlier and have some other people in the supporting roles. You said you wanted a 25-year-old Edward Norton in there. Yeah. Which I, I can totally yeah. see. Now that you've said it, I'm like, yeah, I can see either, that. Either as a Nazi, because, obviously, or <laughs> as the Diana Radcliffe uh, character. But yeah, I I did want a little bit more. I was left lacking a little bit. Well, that's it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't think, it, I don't think it's mind-blown, but I think it is quite gripping. Just I think it is a bit quite of suspense for me, to be honest. You think? Yeah, towards the end. That's it. I mean, I was, kind of fizzled I, out. I was interested. I was involved. And it, it's not perfect, my especially the imagination. But it's got enough momentum to it. It's got enough romping gusto to it to keep going. I thought for a first-time director as well, it was shot brilliantly, actually. For what I'll it agree was. with that, yeah. But I did think as well, as far as, as as far as it being written went, there was depth given to it in areas that I really didn't expect. Yeah. In in a way of actually humanising figures that generally tend to get overlooked. Mm. I feel like it could have lost ten minutes of the Nazi montage as well. Funnily enough, quite I a lot did have the same exact thought. Maybe a bit less Nazis in your Nazi movie next time. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen. In my week. Time.
And we're back. Bit of Top Gun, always fun. So, uh, should we talk about the, what's clearly going to be the biggie this week, then? Yes. The Magnificent Seven. You knew we had to do that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I would have hated ourselves if we didn't do that. Could you imagine if we hadn't thought about it, and then we had to put it in, like, the edit afterwards? Like, wow, that, that would have been awkward. Yeah, that would have been so mm. awkward. So, The Magnificent Seven, which is, of course, the latest Fuqua film. Fuqua film. Fuqua film. Because I, I'm so happy that he's such a prolific filmmaker when we get to say We get to say quite Fuqua films. Yeah, because if those who don't know, um, Antoine Fuqua's production company is uh, Fuqua Films. Fuqua Films. Yeah. And, and we love that because what's Simon Kinberg's one? A uh, Kinberg genre. A Kinberg genre. There we are. So, Antoine Fuqua, <laughs> director of Training Day, The Equalizer, Southpaw, Tears of the Sun, uh, King Arthur. Um, what am I forgetting here? There's more. Olympus has fallen. Oh, yes. Uh, how do you forget these things? Amazing. <laughs> but yeah, so director of all these sort of very macho films uh, now brings us the original Hollywood macho film, The Magnificent Seven, resurrected with Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who's not militarizing anything. No dinosaurs in this picture. Uh, general gist, same as it's always been. In because this is like the centre of every pub quiz, uh, every pub quiz question you've ever heard when it relates to film. What is the Magnificent Seven a remake of? We all know it's the Seven Samurai. This film, yep. interestingly enough, actually credited based on the Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. Actually says that. Amazing. Um, so general gist, uh, you've got uh, bounty hunter Sam Chisholm, played by Denzel Washington, who is approached by the desperate residents of the small town of. Rose Creek and asked, will you help us free our town of this corrupt mining corporation, which is run by a despot played by Peter Sarsgaard, because Peter Skarsgård, sorry. Yeah, because not a Sarsgaard, a Skarsgård. Skarsgård, not a Sarsgaard. There's a big difference. Um, and he in turn recruits six other gunslingers to aid him in his quest. This is his recruitment of his first comrade. Our paths cross again. To what do I owe the pleasure? Took a job looking for some men to join me. Is there money in it? And who's she? Joan of Arc. My name's Emma Cullen. And this is my associate, Teddy Q. Well, I do have an affinity for shiny things. Is it difficult? Impossible. How many you got so far? Two. What, them? You and me? So Chris Pratt and Denzel there. So the good news with the film is we now have proof positive once and for all. Chris Pratt is a movie star. Right, I don't think there can be any dispute with that. Why were you now. questioning that? Because he's only done two big films. So but he was great in them, and they were big. <laughs> they were big, and he, you know, they chose the right week to put out the trailer for the next big Chris Pratt movie, which, funnily enough, came out the same day as the press show for The Magnificent Seven. So, go and figure on that one. <laughs> it's like um, it was planned. Almost like it was planned. I mean, take the two biggest movie stars in the world and see what happens. Um, right, so here are the issues. Right, so Denzel, reliable as he always is, but this is the thing, he's working with Antoine Fuqua. This, we know this works out. Yeah, they're best friends. It's good. That's the thing. When you hire Antoine Fuqua, do you just expect to get Denzel as standard? Is that how it works? Or do you... Well, they've only done three films. It's only about a third one together. Yeah. yeah. The thing it is, feels th- like we work together more. This winds up becoming a training day reunion as well, because you of get Ethan Hawke back, yeah. and, boy, and also a Jurassic World <laughs> Because you got Chris Pratt. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And this is the weird thing. It is a film of reunions, but this it's also a film that is a remake of Hollywood royalty. 
and yet it has no real sense of fun. There are hints here and there of clearly an earlier draft, which was a lot more upbeat, a lot more comedically tinged. And a lot of that seems to have been confined now solely to the uh, Chris Pratt character, which seems to have more to do with his on-screen persona than anything else. Um, You've got a film which tries to be as dour as possible whenever it can. It tries to go... you know, At any given moment, it is fighting to be even more sombre. And you just find yourself thinking, The Magnificent Seven was never this. The Magnificent Seven was... Let's let's get out there and do this. Let's get out and have some fun. We are we are the seven biggest. Na- well, I think there were six of the biggest names around. If we're honest, there's one I can never remember. Um, we were six of the biggest names around. Let's get out there and have some fun and show everyone how it's done. This is we've got two of the biggest names around and Ethan Hawke and here's some no namers and we're just going to make this as miserable a time as we Ethan can. Ethan Hawke is still a pretty big name. Anton Fukori is a big name in his own right and also, as we have often said about doing remakes, why remake something if you've got to make it exactly the same for better or for worse? Well, that's the thing, though, because if you've ever seen The Magnificent Seven, if you've seen, you know, uh, the John Sturges Magnificent Seven from 1960, you will sit through this film and just think, what? why am I... Why have they caught this The Magnificent Seven? Just doesn't fit because it has no tonal, no tonal or, or 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 substantial similarity to it beyond its core narrative, and you do find yourself thinking, I like Peter Peter Skarsgård as the villain. I like uh, Haley Bennett as the. Isn't it Skarsgård? Is it Skarsgård or Skarsgård? It's Skarsgård and Alex and Bill and Stellan are the Scars. <laughs> I don't know anymore. Yep. I don't yeah, know he, anymore. He's Peter Sarsgaard. Yeah. Okay, so that's the problem. It, <laughs> it's basically good enough to work because Antoine Foucault can direct the hell out of an action scene. And there are some great oh, ones yeah. in there. Absolutely. I mean, you've basically got two massive action set pieces. One of them, one sort of the second act, one that closes it out. They do work. They are great. There's some fantastic cinematography in there. It's the stuff that really works and the stuff that doesn't. And mainly, it's absolute sense of misery and grimness that doesn't work. And the problem is, because you've got all these conflicting tonal just little elements, it all comes out and it feels like the good enough seven. And I'm thinking, that's not what you marketed to me. And really, you just come out and want to go and watch The Magnificent Seven again. The good one. The one that's now 46 years old. 56 years old. And, yeah. That was it. I was let down by it. Put it this way, you would not show this to your granddad. You would, you, you would break his heart. Well... I never spoke to my granddad. Okay, are we are we having a Jerry Springer moment? Is that what this bit, is? Yeah. <laughs> okay, quick! <laughs> oh, Jesus, really? Right. I like to just occasionally do a Mike Lee and just bring it right. <laughs> you really do, don't you? So let's stay with the Western track. Uh, we never talked yes. about the fact they are remaking High Noon. Yeah, they are interesting. Set in the present day. Less interesting. Yeah, it's going to be set on the cartel-controlled section of the U.S.-Mexico border. And he's cool. Got- so when is uh, David Ayer going to be announced as a director? I, I was wondering that as well. Yeah. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, is that not kind of the plot of that Arnold Schwarzenegger comeback movie from a couple of years ago? Remember the one where the, oh. the villain had a super fast car? Wait. The Last Stand. The Last Stand, yeah. The, last the stand. one with Johnny Knoxville. That was it. I, I, I kind of liked that. And Louise Guzman with the Conan sword. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, who else? Uh, Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker, that yeah. was the one. Yeah, I, I enjoy that in a very goofy way. I think he was more Desert Whitaker in that movie. Have <laughs> 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 you never seen well, the meme, Forrest Whitaker and Urban Whitaker? But... No, I've seen loads of those. Oh, okay. There's a James Caan, James Can't. Ah. Yeah, I liked uh, Reese Witherspoon and Reese Without Spoon. But uh, that's my favourite. Yeah, so uh, Relativity is going to be their first new project since they emerged from bankruptcy last year. 
You remember that whole ordeal? I do, That yeah. was the story that just dragged on for a year. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. So, um, really quickly then, far too quickly for my, ta- for my taste, we're going to talk about De Palma. Uh, we can talk more about it in the podcast extras, but um, this is uh, this is directed by Noah Baumbach and uh, Jake Paltrow. I don't know if he's any relation, before you ask. I think that he is. is I think it's very specific uh, name, Gwyneth's brother. But this is a look at the life and times of Brian De Palma, as, as given to us by Brian De Palma. Basically, his career, from, from, from birth to now, we get everything. Just him talking to camera intercut with some clips. Uh, here is one clip, and I, I've chosen this one specifically for you, Case, because it deals with what we would define as Hollywood royalty. This was the whole Warner Brothers youth group. Schrader was out there. Schrader was a critic. He brought me the script of Taxi Driver. I didn't think it was commercial, but it was extraordinary. And I thought it was more to Marty's taste. That was basically our group. And we were all very supportive of each other and passing the scripts back and forth and looking at each other's movies. And what we did in our generation will never be duplicated. We were able to get into the studio system and use all that stuff in order to make some pretty incredible movies before the businessmen took over again. It is a look at the what, what we would call the good old days of Hollywood. Um, in, in, funnily enough, over that, uh, over that clip in the actual film itself, when he's talking about, hey, we were able to use the system, mm-hmm. they put the posters of the films he is referring to. And we are talking about Star Wars <laughs> and Jaws and what we would define yeah. as the absolute classics. And, yeah. and, and absolute classics. And The Godfather and things like that. And you think, well, you know what? If you didn't know the story of Brian Palmer and you saw this movie, it would blow your tiny little mind. Like, wow, this is the amp. This is just the the most enjoyable kind of chronicle of a day just that we will never see again. It is a love story of mo- the modern blockbuster era of Hollywood. I mean, it's, it offhandedly at one point mentions Michael Cimino basically destroying it all with Evans Gate. Um, he leaves out a couple of names quite noticeably, like James Cameron, Peter Bogdanovich, etc. It will give you a new appreciation for the films of Brian De Palma. Now, I li- I've always liked Brian De Palma because there is a certain ropiness to his earlier work mm. that I've always enjoyed. Um, there is a, a, a new level of appreciation you will gain for, for instance, Snake Eyes, which begins Brian De Palma's disenfranchisement with the film industry in general, or the Hollywood system in general. Um, you will gain a new appreciation for Mission Impossible. The, the, you will basically it just gives you so much more of an insight into films that you really think of as being quite innocuous, despite the fact that it's Brian freaking De Palma. And do you know what? The man can still spin a yarn and he can still tell a good story. It is an interesting documentary. It might be a smidge over long. I think it goes on for nearly two hours. But it is very worth it. He's got a lot to talk about, I guess. He has. And he does take you through literally every stage of it. He stops at one point to talk about the, the Bruce Springsteen video. Hmm. Uh, which video is that? The one with Courtney Cox? Uh, uh, Dancing in the Dark. Dancing in the Dark, that's what. Yeah. He actually stops and talks about that, and you think, wow, you've talked about that for so much longer than I thought you needed to. But yeah. fair enough. Essentially, that's just it's, a, it's a, just a live video, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. But the weird part about De Palma in general as well is, as well as go, it's not just a historical chronicle. In, in taking you through his body of work, he outlines his lessons for being a director. He doesn't do it directly, mm. but he, he basically infer, he basically unloads his entire directorial process on you bit by bit and how each film has evolved his style. And there is a moment that should be really, really egotistical in anyone else's mouth in which he basically compares himself to Hitchcock and says, you know, I'm the logical successor to Hitchcock. 
you know, no one else, no one else did what I did. And you think, actually, you're kind of right. And I feel kind of ashamed of myself that I really never noticed. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. And we're back in dancing. Do you guys love this Star Wars dancing? Have you played the Xbox game, the, the Star Wars dancing Xbox game? I didn't know that existed. Until oh, you know, Star now. Wars Connect. Star Wars Connect is right. there is like a third of the game is like a, a dance game where you play as Han Solo or Lando Calrissian. I don't know if I'm being you... gullible or. Um... No, it, I, feel that's, that's I will incredible. actually get the game out later and show you. I, can, I, can you take a picture and put it on Twitter? I will do that. I'll, that. After I actually did the connector. So right. let's talk real quickly. There was a film. <laughs> I'm going to blow your mind now. There's a film called. <laughs> that already has. <laughs> well, true. Yeah. Um, I'm going to blow your mind even further then with a conversation about Let's Be Frank, which is a film produced in coordination with Red Bull. It is a 50 minute long film about a South African surfer named Frank James Solomon. And <laughs> do you know what? I'm going to give you the clip first. The, the, the story largely deals with a, a man named Andy trying to solve the mystery of who is Frank. I'm going to play a clip. And before I talk about the tone, I'm going to set this up for you. At the age of 10, Andy became inquisitive asking everyone everything. Like most creative thoughts, Andy's curiosity had no sense of timing and would reveal itself at the most inopportune moments. One day, after the annual hunt at the country manor, having not fired his gun once due to lagyrophobia, which if you don't know is a fear of loud sounds, Andy grew bored of his cousin Bernard's mutterings, something about Lucy and her bad behavior with a South African chap. Not one for chit-chat, he decided to seek solitude, and all at once he stumbled upon the question, who is Frank? So that's it, who is Frank? That is the whole plot of this. Um, this is one of the most bizarre films you will come Like I said, it's a 50-minute film. Now, I didn't know that going in. I expected it to be 90 minutes, and I thought, wow, this is short. I only found out a couple of days later that it was 50 minutes long. <laughs> but uh, So this is... You remember um, the old 90s lager commercials? They used to have a really wacky, really wry sense of humour, and they had yeah. a very similar tone to what you've just heard. This is a film... For instance, the narrator of this film... We actually see narrating mm. we actually see him from the nose down narrating this film <laughs> it is visually incredibly interesting it's exciting to watch there are things happening left right everywhere it's just never and there's never nothing going off in the screen it's almost it's almost tiring actually trying to keep up with it because there is a lot going on visually uh humor humorously there's a, an awful lot to it and at the same time what you've got is actually a really well-written satire, it feels, of just a certain bygone era of jovial film. Okay, I see you've actually got the poster up on your screen there. That poster really does somehow poster. encapsulate the tone of the film. It's, it's got an almost, I, I don't want to say Fincher-esque sense of humour to it, because it seems broader than that. It feels like it wants to be silly, but it doesn't want, it doesn't want to be taken down for it. And I really respect that about it. It's, got, it's not so much got its tongue firmly in its cheek than it is proudly wagging it for all to see, and I really respect that about it. comes from uh, writer-director Peter Hamblin, who has done just incredible work with this. Now, as far as I know, he is actually a sports uh, filmmaker, and it, it kind of shows because there is an energetic style to even the static pop imagery of it. And there's a lot of that, a lot of pop imagery at work. Um, I really, really got into it. I had a great soundtrack. I, I laughed myself senseless. I had great fun with it. It's also, you can watch this now on Red Bull TV. If you actually... Oh, really? You know that app that we all have on the Apple TV that we've I don't think most of us have ever used? 
Mm. It's on there. Go and watch this, and you will be telling people about it. I, I, I went to work the next day just telling the guys, like, you need to see this. It, it, it's really something. And, wow, just really, just watch this. It comes out on uh, on-demand services on Sunday, but you can watch it. Uh, on on Red Bull TV Ooh, now. Sounds good. So, oh, Adam, uh, Adam Sandler, the other one that no one likes. Eddie Murphy. Um, how do you confuse those two? Eddie Murphy has uh, been asked this week, because he's doing uh, promotions for Mr. Church. Yes. He's been asked if he'd ever do a superhero movie. And his response, thankfully, is no, and I'm too old. He has said, though, he would do one that there was a satire of superhero movies. So. I could see that. That'd be cool. <clears throat> yeah, that would, yeah, that would kind of work. Would he be wearing uh, the purple uh, leather suit? From Raw. We can but dream, sir. We can but dream. <laughs> the purple one. No, the, pur- the purple one. Was that Raw? I thought Raw was the red one and purple was Delirious. I couldn't see the Delirious way Delirious is red. Oh, it's Delirious yeah. red. Oh, okay, there we are. See, I, I need to brush up. I've not seen Delirious in quite some time. But they're both amazing. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's all take pride in the idea that Eddie Murphy then would not consider starring in a Marvel movie, which is very good. Although, if they've got a voiceover uh, a voiceover, Black role, Panther's really funny uncle. Oh, man, that would be amazing. Yeah. Could you imagine Just, like, that? cracking wise. <laughs> He's like a Ronnie Dangerfield character. <laughs> let's talk that last film we'll have to be very quick about let's talk about the girl with all the gifts because uh, yeah, this has gotten this some attention really good. and deservedly so this comes by way of the novel by uh, Mike Carey who I didn't know was actually the writer of the Lucifer comics mm. you know we now have the TV series and yeah yeah with Tom Ellis yeah. with Tom Ellis yeah um, this comes from Mike Carey he's actually written the screenplay for the film as well uh, it's directed by Con McCarthy whom I'm not terribly familiar with but he's he's done a lot of TV he did uh, Peaky Blinders for instance yes yeah now, what you've got here, then, is a... Stop me if you've heard this before. A zombie apocalypse has taken over the Earth. But, okay, but this one isn't quite as boring. Don't worry. This is this is one of those interesting ones that usually comes out of the fringe sides. Uh, what you've got is a number of years after a fungal, a fungal infection has basically wiped out most of humanity, uh, those who haven't been wiped out have basically been turned into fungally enhanced flesh-eating zombies, for lack of a better term, who shut down into, like, a screensaver mode when there is no exterior stimuli. Um, children are not as affected uh, by it. Children are obviously infested and have a craving for human flesh, but they still have, um, psych- they still have mental cognitive. They can still be taught, for instance, and they degrade as they get older. Our central character, Melanie, is one of these children. She is raised in a militarised compound where she is basically taken to a school every day where the teacher is Gemma Artin and the children are studied and probed and, yeah... An attack forces Melanie into the outside world with several of her would-be captors, and she very quickly becomes their only real means for survival. This is the point where I I mentioned that those captors happen to include Paddy Considine and Glenn Close. But here's a clip involving involving the schoolroom. Okay, I've got chemical elements here. Wow, lots and lots. Can we have a story? Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Then someone goes and tells Dr. Caldwell and I'm in the sweatbox for a week. We won't tell, we promise. But we did stories last time. Greek myths? Then it counts as history. All right. We'll do one as a warm-up. Now, where were we? Prometheus and Epimetheus. The war with the gods. Got it. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you very welcome, Mr. Stenow. Really, really interesting film that will take you back to the very first time you saw 28 Days Later. Can you believe that's been 15 years, by the way? I know, that's crazy. 15 years yeah. since 28 Days And this recreates that feeling perfectly. You know, that, that, that really profound feeling of, wow, I haven't seen something like this. Although, in this case, obviously, you are being reminded of, of, of that so, one other time. Seen, yeah. yeah. Um, 
This is the thing. It's, it's got that. It, it it owes visually and tonally owes a debt to Twenty Eight Days Later, but still has enough of its own material to actually you know to stand on its own two feet. Um, great cinematography, great visuals, uh, fantastically haunting score as well. But it's all about the performances. And I, you know, I'm going to have to look this up because I knew her name this morning and I have forgotten it. She is a newcomer who plays Melanie, and her name is Senia Nanwa. There we are. Hooray. There we are. I got there in the end. Senia Nanwa. And she's terrific in this. If for no other reason, see this movie purely for her performance. She she's the literally the po- the face on the poster. She's magnificent. She's more magnificent than the Magnificent Seven. There you go. Uh, you got Gemma Arton who basically gets the the core, the emotional core of the story. Paddy Considine gets to be a hard ass in that way that Paddy Considine can do so well. I mean, this is it's no blitz. Don't get me wrong, it's no blitz. <laughs> what but, is? <laughs> what is? And then you have got Glenn Close who shows up to be Glenn Close because she's Glenn Close and Glenn Closing is awesome. And Glenn Close can be Glenn Close. Yeah, exactly. Apart from when she's at Albert Knobs. Um, it does, it takes itself into a really interesting character-based territory. It it takes its cues from things like uh, Stephen King movies, or Stephen King stories, and uh, generally the, the, the tropes of of not zombie films per se, but the the off kilter zombie films, the sort of the sort of zombie films, as it were, you know, not the the sort of sort of zombie films like Twenty Eight Days Later. I mean, it is a running zombie film. It is a Mad Max type film at times. It is genuinely something interesting. It's something you should definitely, definitely watch. Um, to, to put it another way, I'm giving it film of the week. But... Nice. Yeah. I, it does look really good. Trailer looks excellent for it. Yeah, I, I I couldn't look away from it. I was genuinely enthralled by it. Um, so, next week we've got some interesting stuff. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah, we got the oh, one, what are you calling it, the Marky Mark Oil movie? Yeah, I'll think of a better name <laughs> by next week. I like the Marky Mark Oil movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, so the Marky Mark Oil movie, Deepwater Horizons, next week. Free State of Jones is next week yes, as well. Yes, it is, yeah. Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey does the Civil War, because how's that going to possibly yeah. go wrong? White Man Helps <laughs> Civil War. <laughs> and McConaughey. Yeah. It's going to be all right, all right, all right. So, um, the first Monday in May, which I know nothing about. I don't know. I don't, I don't know anything about that one. One. Uh, Swiss Army Man oh, is next week, great. which is going to be very interesting. Uh, we've got uh, Tharlow, which again, don't know anything about, and The Fencer to come as well. We've got Miss Peregrine's Home for, Pecu- uh, for, cu- the cu- for Peculiar Children. Let's start that one again. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That one? That works. That yeah. works. Okay, it was late from Tim Burton, and there's no Johnny Depp in it, so. We have got an Eva Green. We have got an Eva Green. But if there's no if there's no Johnny Depp in your Tim Burton movie, is he even your Tim Burton? It's that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, if a Johnny Depp falls in the woods, does Tim Burton hear it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, we have also got Under the Shadow, which and is is an Israeli horror film, and, and oh, right. get, get this, an Israeli feminist horror film, or is it oh, an Iranian? Cool. I think it's an Iranian feminist horror film. Mm. Sorry, Iranian feminist horror film, and it is genuinely interesting. And we have, of course, got the Obama rom-com. Rom-com? Rom-dram? Yeah, uh, before before White House. Before That's White House, call it. <laughs> AKA Southside with you. Yeah, I think that looks alright actually. She's going to be a very interesting one. We've both got that to watch at some point, have, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, so we've got all that to come and more next week off screen. This has been a candy store production for on screen. I've been Van Con. I've been as always Case Allen. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Off Screen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com. Oh,
podcast extras, Mr. Allen. You know what? We've, we, we've really neglected the film news this week because there's been so much to, to cover this week. We've, we've yeah. been back to the it's film okay. news. It's so. okay. There's no hard feelings. I'm sure the film news is okay. Well, we've got to talk about our boy. We've got to talk about Mickey Giacchino. Our boy, yeah. <laughs> so Michael Giacchino has taken over the score for Rogue One. Did you know this? I did know this. This is awesome. Yeah. It was weird. It's kind of bittersweet because I love him. But I love Alexandre Despard as well. And you, the thing is that he quite clearly had that job in the first place because he has a pattern of working with uh, uh, with uh, Gareth Edwards, Gareth Edwards yeah. through he did Godzilla. Um, Godzilla, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Michael Giacchino, do you not remember when the Force Awakens opened and we jokingly said, "What's well, a J.J. Abrams film that doesn't have Michael Giacchino yeah. doing the music? That's just odd." And then yeah. we said, "Oh well, you know, he'll take over down the line." There we are, and it looks like it could happen. Now, he's now the When first... John Williams retires, yeah. I'm sure that he'll, he'll just be it. He'll be the go-to. He's the first non-Williams Star Wars composer. He is. Ever. Imagine that. Yeah. That is insane. But also, now he's now got a foot into nearly all of the extra Disney mm. properties. <laughs> when when Indy comes out, and John Williams can't do that one. Yeah, there is that. There we are. But, uh, just talking about uh, Despoir, yeah. he is now doing the Luc Besson from. Oh, Valerian, isn't it? He's now doing Valerian, yeah. So, it's not too bad. He's lost one space opera and he's going into another. So, that's okay. Well, these guys all love their space operas. I think it's because you, you get the most interesting score work, I think, in the space yeah. opera. Well, he did um, Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending. Michael Giacchino. Now- Michael Giacchino did Jupiter yeah, Ascending. Oh, yeah. God. Which is an alright score. It's just a terrible film. <laughs> <laughs> alright score. Really loathsome movie. Have you heard about uh, the Netflix Lost in Space series, by the way? Yeah, I heard about it today. Yeah. yeah. Toby Stevens is going to be uh, John Robinson, the, the the patriarch in Lost in Space. The Bill Hurt from the film. Yes, yeah, William Hurt in the 98 film. All right. Uh, really? That's the version you know? Like, that's yes. your Lost in Space? Not everyone is 55. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if you were 55, you'd, have been, you'd be too young to that's have seen. True, yeah. You'd still be too young to have seen Lost no, in Space. No, if 75. <laughs> yeah, 75, then you could feasibly have seen Lost in Space the first time around. Uh, no, it's because I grew up in the Middle East where, where our TV shows were like 50 years old, so... Yeah. I st- you were that Family Guy gag. <laughs> we were that Family Guy gag. I still remember the premiere of Adam West's Batman, I'll have you know. It was oh in God. 1994, and I'm not making that up. 1994 really? was the Middle Eastern premiere of Adam West's Batman. Seriously. So you, Not- got, you got that after Michael Keaton had stopped being Batman. Yeah, Michael That's Keaton amazing. stopped being Batman. <laughs> I, I've seen all of MASH, the series. Yeah. Not because I just happen to love old comedy, because I watched it on its first run <laughs> in the mid-90s. Oh, God. This, I've just thought about an episode of MASH where it's just like right in the heart. Oh, are What's you on about on? Henry when Henry died? No, he's... Henry Blake was shot down. Yeah, but that, that's that, sad as well. That, that obviously, is, uh, no, there's there's one with Alan Alda, and he's flashing back to something, mm. and he's he's talking about this woman that has a chicken, and she had to kill the chicken. Yes, but it's not actually a chicken. I, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. That was such a good series. Yeah, and it gave us Alan Alda. So that's it. Anything that gives me Alan Alda is great. Let's stay with the Netflix thing one minute and talk about your boy Adam Scott. Um, yeah. Adam Scott is uh, going to star in a in a horror comedy for Netflix. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Yes. Just brace I'm ready, yourself. I'm ready. Brace yourself. He's going to star in a horror comedy for Netflix. Krampus 2? It's going to be called Little Evil. Ooh. It is going to also co-star Evangeline Lilly as his on-screen wife. They will be a married couple who discover that their young son, their, <laughs> their young son, I think it's be six years old, something like that, is in fact the Antichrist. That sounds great. So Adam Scott is doing effectively a satire of the omen. Yeah, funny omen. A, a funny omen. Yeah. yeah that that's 
Brilliant. I'm, I'm all on board for I'm that. I'm on board for that as well. Yeah. That's going to premiere sometime next year. So we've got that to look forward to as well. Uh, let's talk about... Oh, um, another one of your boys, Steve Martin. Because you're a big Steve Martin fan, aren't you? Of course I am. Huge. Isn't that how you met your wife? You bonded over Steve Martin. A little bit, yeah. I remember the speech at your wedding. That was... Yeah, Steve Martin did play an integral part. Wait, wait. Did, did, did you use Steve Martin to get a chicken to bed? Is of that... course I did. Yeah. But dog, fist bump me, man. There we are. Boom. We watched. We watched oh, Parenthood. We watched Parenthood the day after we kind of went on a first date, and yeah, Thanks. that's kind of that's kind of how we bonded, I guess. Back the Simpsons. That, that's fair enough. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense to me now. Explains a lot about you, Steve Martin. <laughs> Steve Martin's got a new film coming out called Magic Camp for Magic Disney. Camp. Magic Camp, in which he is going to be, <laughs> he's going to be like a curmudgeon who returns to his childhood summer camp. Which is a magic camp, Harry Potter style, Percy Jackson style, in which he basically is going to become like a mentor figure and help the kids win like the Wizard's Cup. This is also going to be directed (laughs) by the director of Mean Girls, Mark Waters, as well. Oh, right. Oh, you just lost your enthusiasm. A little bit, just because he did that vampire film a couple of years ago. Vampire Academy, was it? Vampire's... It was it was like twin, twin twin girls twin girl vampires in school. Oh, and on the post it was like former director of Mean Girls. And yeah, no, for, I mean Mean Girls is a fantastic film. The direction is not what makes that a fantastic film. No, it, it's not. It's not actually. Yeah. In fact, I'm sure Cassie and I have had conversations about Mean Girls because she really loves that movie, doesn't she? she? Loves that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we've had that she conversation. <laughs> As do I. It's very good. But uh, yeah, well, you know, Tina Fey. There's nothing wrong with Tina Fey. So, uh, what we're going to review first this week? You want to talk about uh, Barden Barden real quickly? Um, this is a, uh, I think it's a Belgian film from Rachel Lang, and uh, this is this has got at, at its centre is a story of a twenty-something, a dissatisfied twenty-something girl who's kind of aimless, kind of direction. She's had a job as a runner on a film set, and the film literally opens with her being just comically berated and tormented by uh, by the film's director she then quits this uh, this 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 job and goes back to live with her grandmother her grandmother has an accident in which she's she's hospitalized and she then has to spend her summer basically retrofitting her grandmother's bathroom for her i know this sounds like the most deranged and bizarre kind of a kind of a drop but uh, say it stars uh, salome richard um as the as the central character uh, written and directed by rachel lang i'm not terribly familiar with rachel lang's films if i'm honest do you know her do you know her work? No, not I really. But uh, I know say I know she is a European director who did Ah, Zeno. There we are. And um it is a really really funny little film. I I was la- I was I did find myself laughing quite a bit at how I would say it had a little slacker comedy to it. It was that millennial, I don't quite know what to do with my 20s sort of a, 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 bit, a bit of comedy. It did work. There is a sort of an amount to it. It's about this woman's journey through trying to journey through the summer, but also trying to sort her life out at the same time. And also just the random things that happen to her along the way, the dysfunctional relationships that evolve and devolve effectively as, as she goes along. Um, I did really like it, and I thought a lot of it had to do with not only Rachel Lang's writing, which is surprisingly sharp, actually, but also uh, Salome Richard's uh, uh, general performance. She has just this this infectious delivery, this infectious presence that wins you over quite early on, but it is, above all, a really, <clears throat> really funny film. I don't think you'd credit it as a comedy. I think it is more of a dramedy. 
but it's just this tight 96 minutes. I mean, one of the movie releases. Oh, you know, this, right, yeah. You know, this is the thing now. Lately, movie are trying to get more into the, uh, let's just put out some wacky foreign films. And they actually are tending to be pretty good, pretty decent. Mm. I mean, Blue Room was you know decent enough, and then you've got this, and there's some stuff coming. It, it's actually turning out all right. But uh, but we've got to the box office top ten for the week. Do you want to crack on with it? Let's do it. Let's get that done. Number ten. Ben-er. Ben-er. ben uh, Yep. Number nine. The Infiltrator. <laughs> Which I really wanted to be excellent, but it's not. And I feel bad about that. It's just all right. <laughs> it's just all right. And Cranston's good in it. And, and Johnny Legs is good in it. And Diane Kruger, Benjamin Bratt's very good in it. Oh, Benny Bratt. Benny Bratt. Benny Bratt. But uh, the problem is, it's, it just it drags on. It's just not got much momentum to it. It's not quite as interesting as they think it is on the page. Mm. And really, you kind of just wish you were watching Donnie Brasco. I mean, it is like Donnie Brasco meets Scarface. Yeah, it's Donnie Brasco-like. Number eight. Finding Dory. This is slipping down. It is. How it's long? Eight weeks. It's eight it weeks. is. How long before we have to say goodbye, though, is what I want to know. I reckon we've got at least another week. Yeah, I think, well, we were safe for one more week. Yeah. Um, so I, I loved it. I know you did as well. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. It, it's, there is this this homecoming feeling of having Dory and, and Nemo and Marlon back in cinemas. And, yeah. You know, all the great new characters, Idris Elba's, mm-hmm. uh, Ed O'Neill's, and so on and so forth. Um, and by the way, Ed O'Neill to play Brian De Palma in a biopic. Just saying. Oh, do it now. Yeah, do it now. Yeah. Do it now. Ed O'Neill as Brian De Palma. Just have a dramatization of that biopic where he's just. Sat down, sewn at a camera. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, really, really enjoyed it. Um, love the new characters, love the old characters. Mm. Um, it did take me for a ride I didn't quite expect. Mm. In the way that I was gripped so much more than I thought I would be from a sequel to Finding Nemo that was effectively just going to recycle that plot. And It does it in the best way, it does it? it in, in the Toy Story 2 route. Exactly, in the yeah. way that Toy Story 2, which is let's take the characters and put them out in the wild again. And yeah, that works. Number seven. Bad Moms. Which is slipping down, and I like it. I, I really did laugh at this. I did have a good time with it. I wish it had more to say. I mean, it does have more to say, but I wish it actually said it. And it doesn't, but you know what? It makes you laugh about it, and I can live with that. Number six. Don't breathe. <gasps> Don't you dare breathe. Or see what is coming I saw I'm a smoker. Uh- <laughs> And that's as long as I can last. That's as long as I can last. Um, really, lo- really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, really want to see it again. You still not really want to Did you see, see anything this last week, by the way? I did. I saw uh, Hunt for the World of People, which yes. is not in the top ten, but I... Should be number one. I adored. <laughs> Always remember that Her didn't even enter the top ten. Yeah. Really? Did you not know that? I didn't know that. Her did as, not make the... As the star of Her, <laughs> <laughs> I'm personally affronted by that. Yes, Her really? never made the uh, UK box office top ten. But, uh, yeah. I'm shocked by that, because when I... When and I it opened on Valentine's Day. I remember. Yeah. When I worked for a uh, famous uh, cinema chain, whose uh, shall remain nameless... Whose world of cine shall remain nameless. Yeah. Um, it, it was there for quite a while. It was there for at least four weeks. Was it? Yeah, it was. I'm surprised. Because I saw it twice. Maybe it was staged because of me. Yeah, quite Maybe possibly. Was, yeah. You were keeping their box office afloat. With my free um, tickets. Yeah, but always, <laughs> always remember, her never made the box office top ten, and neither did Popstar. So, no, no, Popstar didn't. Yeah. Neither did, it, uh, what was the other one this year? Uh, Sing Street. Oh, Sing Street didn't. We got to 11. There you go. All three of those are great movies. You should see them all. All better than Ben-Hur. All better than Ben-Hur. What were we actually talking about? Don't breathe. Don't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to go see it. It does look great. You love it. You're going to go see it again. Hey, exactly. Let's go together sometime. Let, let's do that, Case. Number five. Kubo and the Two Strings. I saw this as well. Did you see this? I saw this on Sunday. Right. Go on, then, because you, you're the fresh face. What did you think of it? Um, oh, I thought it was great. 
yeah no oh, it's just yeah the animation style was amazing i think that it moves like a forward a little bit in terms of a studio it really does doesn't it yeah. It feels like it i say and like i said to you when we reviewed it it feels like a, a culmination of like a to date yeah like it feels like in this you know the way that the avengers felt like the culmination it was it was the end of the phase wasn't it yeah it's this like they've been like, bringing up yeah. all these little like tricks and mm. little little kind of small things that we've got from each of the three preceding films and and we've now distilled it into this, and it's fantastic. It's, I can't wait for phase two. Phase yeah. two of Lyca. Exactly, yeah. It's, it's a nice, simple quest tale. It's a fable. But, it's a, yeah. yeah, a fable. It, it, it That's was, the term I didn't get to use. It was wonderful. Number four. Sausage Party. Sausage Party. Oh, sauvage Party, if you're Johnny Depp. <laughs> Which I really liked, and I did laugh myself senseless at, and I had a lot of fun with, and... Uh, just just don't take it seriously. And don't, you'll, no, yeah, no. Don't take it seriously, and just... You're gonna be offended no matter who you are, and it's that principle of if we offend every type of person, then we're not offending people. Yeah, no one can, no one can, no one can complain really because everyone is equally being mocked. Yeah. Either no one can complain or everyone can complain. It's one or the other, and the film really does have its cake and eat it, or hot dog and eat it in that in that case. Um, there's so many gangs in it that stay with you. That's what I really liked about it. There were little asides that were bigger than the actual big gags. And there's a there's a surprising amount of depth and meaning put into there. It has the you know probably the most deranged final 5 minutes of any film you're going to see this year, possibly even this decade if we're honest. But yeah, it's up there with this is the end for just where on earth did this come from? When it gets to you know the very end, it's like right at the end, yeah. Wow. But I mean, I want to see what they do next. You got to give it to Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. They yeah. know how to do endings. You got to give yeah. them that. They do know how to do endings. Like John Mosby famously said to me, the problem with films these days is they don't have a third act. Yeah. You know what? They can do it. Seth Rogen can do third acts, and he can do them very, very well. Number three, The Beatles. Eight days a week. The touring years. You need a shorter title there, one Howard. <laughs> do a bit. Just The Beatles would have worked. Yeah, that would be fine. Yeah, that kind of would have worked. Fab Four, even shorter. Yeah, Fab Four. That would have been amazing. Mm. I think the problem is people would have accidentally said Fan Four and. We we thought we were in last summer then. There have been a lot of disappointed people, and we'd have to give Miles Teller royalties. And oh, no can one you imagine Miles it. Teller playing a Beatle? I try not to. I try not to imagine Miles Teller playing But he is the Ringo of he, modern Hollywood. He can play drums. I'll say that for him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give him that. <laughs> yeah, he can play drums in the same way that Chloe Moretz can play the cello. But anyway, um, <laughs> you're, you're Miles Bubblehead. But um, this is this is my uh, this is my my issue with the the Beatles is quite simply there's not enough of it, and uh, I could watch this for three times the length. I really mm. loved this. I thought it was a, a, a great documentary. I thought yeah. it was one of those documentaries that you didn't even particularly have to like the Beatles to enjoy. You just have to like a good music documentary. Yeah, it was which is the best kind. Really. Well, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's the, I mean. Th- it says an awful lot if you're not interested in the subject matter, and you can. I, I'm not what I would call a Beatles fan. I don't have any objections. I don't mind the Beatles. There's some Beatles songs that you know you sing along to when you hear, but you don't care otherwise. And this is an age thing that a lot of people sort of in our age bracket now are going to have, because we exist so far removed from the Beatles that when you know Beatles rock band comes out and when Beatles hits the Apple Store, things like that, we simply don't care. It's for the older generation. And you're looking at me like you want me dead about now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I know Respect, you're, respectfully disagree. You're a music guy, though. I'm saying I I'm, I'm more guy. general pop culturalist, but still. <laughs> and you are someone that, if the soundtrack to the 2002 film Daredevil came on in your car, you'd listen to it quite happily. You actually know for a fact that that has happened, Case. Yes. And yeah, <laughs> I'm not disputing that. But no, I, I, uh, I, I, it gave me a look into the Beatles that I've never been afforded before. Mm. It gave me a humanizing look at the Beatles. I was very happy with it. I came out of it and thought, actually, I have a new respect for the Beatles that I didn't have before. It does have an amazing soundtrack as well, and there are films that you... <laughs> who'd have thought? <laughs> who'd have thought that? There are songs that, to be honest, half the time I didn't actually know were Beatles songs, because you know when they've become so ingrained in in the public consciousness. Yeah. You just know them and you're like, oh, it's... it's you, you know it. Yeah. You Half the time, you don't know it's a Beatles song. Well, that kind of tells you an awful lot about it. And the, there's a point in which they're compared to Mozart and Bach in terms of number of hits generated. Mm. Or number of great songs generated. N- number of hits versus number of great songs. In terms of number of great songs, they are compared to Mozart and Bach. And you actually hear the number of songs that you didn't know were Beatles songs and think... Actually, yeah, you know what? Good point. Number two. Let's keep it short and sweet on this one. Blair Witch. Blair Witch. Uh, Number one. Bridgie Baby. Bridgie Baby. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Ignoring the fact that it has the most just grammatically offensive title of the year, which irritates me every time I see it. They're all like that. I hate it. I don't know if it's just like a quirk we've decided to stick with. There's no apostrophe in Edge of Reason. Bridget, it's just Bridget Jones' oh, it not Edge just of Reason. Bridget Jones's Edge of... Not Bridget Jones's Edge of Reason. She's on the Edge of Reason. Yeah, I think it's just Bridget Jones' colon, The Edge of Reason. No. I mean, I would rather... It I been... was on Edge of My Patience. Yeah, I was, I'd rather it had been Bridget Jones' Retaliation, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, but Bridget Jones played by Mila Jovovich instead. <laughs> oh, no, I just wish they would give like action movie subtitles to rom-com sequels. That for me would be amazing, or something like horrible bosses, revengeance, you know, something like that would be quite good. But uh, no, um, Bridget Jones, which is is funny enough. It's nice to see her back. It's a big improvement on the second one. Um, you you do kind of forget how awful her performance as Bridget Jones is, but at least it's consistent. Um, can't be first likable enough. Patrick Dempsey makes for a articulate enough phoned-in stand-in for, you know, the clearly uninterested in returning you, Grant. Um, and, to be honest, the film is entirely stolen by Emma Thompson and Sarah Soleimani from Bad Education. And, uh, some of the humour does seem to be a good half-decade out of date, and then you realise the film I think supposedly is actually set in 2011, so it kind of makes sense, but not quite, because the gags are still a bit crap. And they all use modern technology. So, it, I mean, we didn't have Ed Sheeran in 2011, but yeah. Simpler, happier times. Simpler, happier times when we didn't have Ed Sheeran. <laughs> well, Sing meant something entirely different back in 2011. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But that's it. I'm not, I'm not offended by the existence of Bridget Jones 3 or something like that. It's, it's, it's fine. It exists. It's, you know, not offensively bad or anything. You can enjoy it. You'll sit there and enjoy it. I laughed a solid four or five times. That's good. Ah, that's I, I laughed. I sat there and I, I laughed at a few gags. And there was a... The, do you know what? There was a, there's a gag in there about uh, Hitler when she talks about... Never mind. There is a gag about Hitler, and I, I did laugh at that. I thought, actually, that's just a gag that I never expected to find in a Bridget Jones movie, so that, mm. that works for me. Done. Sold. It works It was me. no Imperium, though, when it comes to Nazis. <laughs> no, Imperium did more with Hitler, I'll be honest. Yeah. 
There is a point as well, actually, in Imperium, in which you'll remember this, when Daniel Radcliffe starts doing his, his research for his uh, undercover role, and he... Uh, <laughs> doing research. That's it, and he yeah. just he just seems to order books off Amazon for like a month. He seems to spend a month in a really crappy apartment mm. ordering books off Amazon. Now, the, yeah, one of the books is called Imperium, and there's a really horribly long clinging shot. Yeah, on the book. yeah, there is. Like this is the name of the film. <laughs> but the books he orders, you just sit there and think like. The government isn't keeping tabs and sending people sending people around to the houses that are ordering exclusively mm. these books. Like a young disenfranchised man spends a month ordering nothing but neo-Nazi books. The FBI are in cahoots, so Amazon knew he was undercover. Well, it's entirely possible. So let's talk then about what could feasibly be the worst film of the year. And I've been I've been looking forward to this. Um, actually, you know, you know, you know what? Batman v Superman is still infinitely really. Yeah. So let's talk about Dare to be Wild, which is an Irish film about a 20-something girl who really wants to win the Chelsea Flower Show. I'm not making that up at all. You've, that's, you've, you've that's, lost me. That's the plot. It stars Emma Greenwall and Tom Hughes, neither of whom you'll particularly know. Emma Greenwall has been in uh, three episodes of True Blood, though, from what I've read. Um, <laughs> how to describe this? She's a young girl who gets screwed out of a flower designing job. Have you just looked it up on your phone? Is yeah, that, is that what a like, grimacing face is for? Yeah, but I just saw the tagline. The tagline is uh, "Dare to Dream." Yeah, is uh, it? It's something like that. It oh, is uh, a film for the dreamer in all of us. Oh, pass me the vomit bags! My God, um, <laughs> just just wait for it. Please wait for it. I promise you, this gets worse. In fact, do you know what? You know the plot. She wants to win the Chelsea Flower Show. She has to. Uh, she has to raise the money to arrange all of her flowers. She wants to do wildflowers, hence the title. She hooks up with what seems to be a hippie commune and gets in touch with nature by travelling to Ethiopia for no reason. Yeah, your, oh, well, that was left field. Yeah, your your face is saying it all. Here's a clip. I've been accepted to compete at the Chelsea Flower Show. 2,000 applicants, and you made the cut. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to get this much funding to build a garden? And how much do you need? £250,000. Who's going to donate to the likes of me? This is an opportunity to change how people think. The reality is you cannot create a wild nature garden at Chelsea in three weeks. I've come to ask for your help. You see, gardens these days have nothing to do with the feeling that wild places give us. No, let's let John Oliver take this away. F*** you! F*** you all forever! You f*** yourself! You go f*** yourself right now! Yeah, I think John Oliver covered it for us, though. Um, right, this is offensively bad. This is, this is antagonisingly bad. This is the longest experience of your life. Do you know how, do you remember that bit in uh, Deep Blue Sea when uh, LL Cool J sums up thermodynamics by saying, grab a hold of a hot woman, an hour feels like a second, grab a hold of a hot pan, a second feels like an hour? Yeah, that logic applies to this movie. Every second of this movie feels like an hour. It is antagonizingly poor. It is like a lobotomy with a geranium. It is just awful. There are war crimes more enjoyable than this. This is oh, yeah? just name five. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, I keep a laminated list right here. <laughs> For just such an occasion. <laughs> I've been waiting many years for someone to ask that question. <laughs> People said I was mad. <laughs> they said it could never be used. I have proved them wrong. <laughs> right, what we have just done is genuinely funnier than this film. 
<laughs> there, was, there were five of us in the press show for this. And you've never seen five angrier people in your life. Right. Written and directed by Vivian DeCourcy. And my God, no, go away. Just you're asleep at the wheel. This just looks like the worst kind of saccharine sub country file dross flower power fluff of the lowest vomit inducing common denominator. It is in every feasible sense of the word It is utter and complete bilge. It is like having sewage poured directly into your cranium for the agonising sum total of an hour and forty painfully long minutes. There is a moment in this film, I you not, in which the judges of the Chelsea Flower Show are sat around this garden at night by firelight judging it. Now... This is apparently based on a true story. Not making that up, apparently an actual true story. The movie has the unmitigated gall to end with a series of title cards explaining why this is an inspirational story and all the random shit she's done since. Mm. And you're sort of thinking, do you know, the only flowers I really want to see right now are going to be the ones on my own grave after I've put a bullet through my brain. This is just the worst. Wow. There is also, who's the guy who plays plays the dad of one of the in between us? He's also in the thick of it. I can't. Oh. I never never know his name. Is it Alex McQueen? Is it Alex? It is Alex Holding McQueen. Guy. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Right. Alex McQueen turns up as the head of the Chelsea Flower Show. Ne- Neil's dad. Neil, yeah. Neil's dad. Yes, he turns up as the guy running the Chelsea Flower Show, and his whole shtick is he's stiff and British. And you think, wow, your lowest common denominator yeah. you know, syndrome clearly applies just to casting as well. But... He's one of those British guys that he shows up in films to just be a British guy. Yeah, he does. Oh, look, yeah. a British guy for my film, the British guy. <laughs> is, is that... <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. But, oh, my God, this is... I mean, to say this film is pushing daisies is really just... It's, it's an insult to Brian Fuller. Oh, God. Good lord. Yeah. I came out afterwards, I'm thinking, no, I don't want to dare to be well. I want to dare to be awake through this. That <laughs> That's what it is. It's, a, it's the kind of film that genuinely makes you wish you'd left the oven on. Mm. Not so much that you had an excuse to go home and turn it off, but more that so you could go home and stick your head yeah, in it. It's just, wow. This is just, I cannot believe a sentient human wrote this took it to a funding board, got the money for it, and then dedicated time, effort, and the hiring of other sentient humans to the actual production of it. It's it's like finding out the Nazi party had an HR department. It's just one of those things where you can't work out how. That was a subplot in Imperium I could have needed. <laughs> the HR department of the Nazi party. But hey... Right. Uh, better than Batman v Superman. <laughs> no, do you know what? Now that I'm saying that out loud, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know is. if it's better than Batman v Superman. It's, I'm just, I just, I can't take, just thinking back on it, I'm just like, I don't know. I I can't, I want to forget it. Do you know if, if uh, what's the, the, the Jim Carrey Kaufman movie, Strange Mind or whatever, 
with Kate Winslet, Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, Eternal Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine, yeah. The Spotless Mind. I want that. That's what I want. I want that. You want to take it away I, from I you. I want it out. Yeah. I want it out, out, of out, of my, my, out of my brain. I want it out of my melon right now. I want it out. Gone. <laughs> Off with it. Just take it the <laughs> out of me. I don't want it. And um, before Van has uh, <laughs> some kind of psychotic episode resulting in a brain embolism, here it is, your moment of cage. There are over 550 million firearms in worldwide circulation. That's one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. The only question is, how do we arm the other 11? 